Well, we have been studying the book of Luke, and we have talked about how Jesus has authority. And Jesus has authority we have seen. Ultimately, we skip to the end and we see that he has received all authority in heaven and earth. But we've seen specifically through our study that Jesus has authority in his teaching. He has authority over demons, over sickness, over nature, and over the law itself. Today we're going to meet a guy that really understands authority. We're going to see somebody who embodies the sermon that we saw last week that Jesus gave in chapter 6 of Luke. Last week, Jesus told us what we would look like, what our life would look like if we built it on the rock. And today, we're going to see a guy who has built his life on the rock and see what he looks like. We'll meet a guy that fleshes out for us last week's sermon. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, and let's read the first 10 verses. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed." For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, a centurion was a pretty important fellow. He was a high-ranking soldier in the Roman army. As you may discern from his title, centurion, you know that that sounds like centennial or century. It has to do with 100. He was in charge of 100 Roman soldiers. Now, that could be give or take a few. They weren't very strict on the number, but he's in charge of about 100 soldiers. He rose to this rank by being a great warrior who proved himself to be a natural leader. So this fellow is a man's man. You know, we hear a lot today about toxic masculinity. What, what, what is exactly toxic masculinity? You know, uh, theoretically, when I heard that term, I thought, well, maybe they're talking about someone who would rather uh, fight and dominate rather than talk and think and persuade. In other words, a bully. You know, the toxic adjective could refer to men who, who dominate others by intimidation. Unfortunately, I think in today's society, any sincere uh, display of masculinity is considered toxic. But we'll see that this man's man did not think it was inappropriate or weak to show humility and show compassion. Look with me at verse 2 and we'll see his care and compassion for his servant. It says, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now I told you the centurion was going to be the embodiment 
of what we saw in Luke chapter 6. So notice who this centurion is concerned for and who he's trying to help. It is a servant, someone of a much lower station who will not be able to repay him. I mean, if this guy gets well, then yes, he'll continue to serve his master, but uh, his, that's just his job, right? So this guy is going above and beyond to find help for the servant because he cares about him. Back in chapter 6, we read Jesus command us to love our enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So this powerful centurion is helping his servant who does not have the power to repay him. He's doing good to someone and not expecting anything in return. Now why would he do that? Well, it tells us because he highly valued the servant's life. So we see that this centurion was strong, he was kind, he was compassionate. But in the next verses, we're going to see that he was also loving and generous. Luke 7, 3 through 5 says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built for us our synagogue. All right, now, think with me. If somebody walked in here and said, hey, guys, I know you are trying to build a a location in South Ellisville. How much is it going to cost? And we tell him, and he says, all right, cool, and writes us a check. We're going to like that guy, aren't we? So these Jews, they liked this centurion. Now, I hope the strangeness of this, though, is not lost on you because the Jews hated, passionately hated the Romans. They were this occupying force. They were Gentiles. And the reason the centurion was there was to keep the peace, but also to make sure that taxes were collected. And if you've read any of scripture, you realize that the Jews do not like the tax collectors who are collecting taxes for the occupying Romans. So for this centurion to be loved and respected by the Jewish elders, he must really have been a great guy and had a way with people. These Jewish elders weren't coerced into going and speaking for him either. They wanted Jesus to help this guy. You know, they didn't come to Jesus and say, look, please help this guy, because if you don't, he's going to make our lives harder. On the contrary, they said, please help this guy, because he loves our nation, he's been super generous to us, and he is worthy of your help. Now, the Jewish elders thought this guy was worthy of Jesus' attention and blessing, But I want us to notice that the centurion himself had a very different perspective. In verses 6 and 7, we read, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed." Now, he didn't fail to come to Jesus in person because he thought, I'm an important guy. I'm going to send some flunkies to take care of this ailing servant. That is not why he didn't go to Jesus. We see that he didn't go because he knew that he was unworthy to come before Jesus. He had heard about Jesus, and he knew enough about him to know, hey, Jesus is holy. 
I'm not. I don't need to go get in front of this guy. I don't know who told him about Jesus, but whoever it was did a fantastic job of evangelism because this guy seems to have a better understanding of who Jesus was than anybody else, than any of the Jews. See, the Jewish elders thought this centurion was worthy, but the centurion certainly did not think he was worthy. Now, that's the difference between man-made religion and the gospel. Man-made religion says, if I do these things then I am worthy of that thing. It's the quid pro quo that we heard all about last year. All man-made religions work that same way. Every single one of them work that way. I'm going to do this so that, I can do, so that I can get this. The Jewish elders said, he's done these things, therefore as a reward, you should do what he asks. See, religion says he's worthy, but the centurion said, I am not worthy. Religion says to us, here is how you can become worthy. Only the gospel says you can never be worthy. But Jesus was worthy in your place. You can never be good enough to get to God, so he came to you. The centurion did not think that he had earned God's favor. If he had, he could have boldly come to Jesus and said to him, hey, I've been great to your people. I've built you guys a synagogue. Because I've done these things, I want you to do something for me in return. That was certainly not what he thought. That's not how he approached Jesus. Instead, he was seeking help for someone else and not presuming to even approach Jesus himself. You know, the law shows us that our God is unapproachable in his holiness But the gospel tells us he approached us because he loves us. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. That's the first step, realizing God's holiness and your sinfulness. And the unbridgeable chasm between the two that we just sang about a few moments ago. If God has shown you that, he has shown it to you by his grace. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. But the song goes on to say, and grace my fears relieved. That is when you realize that the seemingly unbridgeable chasm has in fact been bridged by the cross of Jesus. Some people think that all religions lead to God. It's like they're all going up the same mountain. They're taking different routes. But eventually they'll get to the top of the mountain where they'll find God. All man-made religions are leading to the same place, but that place is hell. The gospel says God came off that mountain because you could never possibly manage to climb up it. Somehow this centurion knew that despite all his accomplishments, despite all his good works, he was still not worthy of God's favor. Now something else this guy understood was Jesus' authority. Read with me in verses 7 and 8. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion had learned two very important lessons. The first is he learned how to be under authority. The next is he learned to be in authority. 
And until we learn that first lesson, we are not ready for that second lesson. You know, our society despises authority. Because, by definition, when someone else has authority, it limits your autonomy. In our society, personal autonomy is the greatest good. When, you know, our society says women should have the autonomy to kill their unborn children if they choose to, with no restriction. Everyone should have the autonomy to be with, romantically, anyone they choose to be with. A little thing like reality shouldn't even hold us back in our pursuit of autonomy. If reality limits our autonomy regarding our gender, then that has to go too. Because our autonomy is the greatest good in our society. Now we lost our moral compass a long time ago, but now our society has lost its collective mind. We aren't even allowing ourselves to be limited by reality anymore. Do you remember that that anarchist village they set up in, in Seattle? It was called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone because autonomy is the greatest thing. Now recently, lots of folks have decided that they have the autonomy to loot and burn other people's stuff. Never in my life have I seen such a hatred for authority. When a cop pulls me over, I do what he asks me to do when he asks me to do it. You know why? Because I respect authority and I know what it is to be under authority. Now, the last guy that pulled me over, I, I think I've told y'all, and Gabriel makes fun of me for it, I told y'all I don't speed uh, intentionally anymore. I used to, you know, if the speed limit said 55, I'd say, well, I can go 60 and they won't stop me. Well, I was reading through scripture and it said, be subject to authorities. And I said, huh, I'm not subject to the authority because I think I can get away with not being subject to the authority. So it's just a little thing that the Lord dealt with me on. And so I don't speed anymore uh, unless I don't see a sign or something. I don't intentionally speed. So I don't get pulled over very often. By the way, it's amazing how that works. If you don't break the law, You don't normally have interactions with police. But anyway, I did get stopped because I was driving down the road between here and Bay Springs and a policeman had pulled over another car. And so they were getting back onto the highway and they pulled out in front of me in a, at a short distance. I mean, I wouldn't have done it because I wouldn't have wanted to be rude and make the guy behind me slow down. But this cop didn't, didn't worry about that. So he pulled out in front of me. And normally when people pull onto the highway, they accelerate, right? Well, not this guy. He didn't accelerate so that I would come closer to him. So I came up behind him thinking he was going to accelerate. He didn't. And so then he got really mad and he pulled over and flashed his lights at me and pulled me over. And then spent the next 10 minutes yelling at me about how I had gotten too close to him and was following him too closely. Um, Now, I didn't, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. I didn't like the guy, I didn't have a whole lot of respect for him afterward, but I respected his authority, right? I'm going to say something important now, so if you're sleeping, wake up. <laughs> if you do not train your children to respect your authority, it will be very difficult for them to learn to respect God's authority. All right, one more time, because that was good. If you do not train your children, or your grandchildren, or your great-grandchildren, To respect your authority, it will be very difficult for them to learn to respect God's authority. Now, I know that you're going to mess up in your parenting. 
I certainly have. But let me tell you, my kids grew up respecting authority, and they still respect authority. Now, I see kids, I'm about to walk in a landmine-filled field uh, of giving parental advice. So if you get mad at me, uh, just tell me later and I'll apologize. (laughs) Okay. I've heard kids and seen kids that tell their parents no. Now, guys, the only time my kids told me no was when I said, would you like ketchup? And then they said, no, sir, or no, thank you. Uh, Let me encourage you, parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, to teach your kids to respect your authority, and I mean fully and immediately. You can do it. I know from experience because we've done it. Another unsolicited piece of advice that may get me in trouble is if you threaten punishment for your kids, enact that punishment. Guys, uh, unless, when when I would talk to my kids and we were at a restaurant or something where I couldn't inflict punishment right away, I would tell my kids something like this. I would say, unless I die or Jesus comes back before we get home, I solemnly promise you that you will get an energetic and thorough spanking when we get home. Now, do you know why they believed me? They believed me because I didn't fail to deliver So if they learn correction and respect for authority from you, it will help them later in their relationship to God. So we all have to learn what it is to be under authority. Now, I hope that your parents helped you with that, but whether they did or not, we all need to learn to be completely under Jesus' authority. I mean, we talked about this last week, remember? We said we can either say Lord to Jesus and mean it, Or we can reserve the right to say no to him. You cannot possibly do both. So as far as I can tell, there were two times in the Bible where it records that Jesus was amazed. Two times. Now Jesus has amazed people all the time, right? I mean, he goes and he says, hey guys, uh, bring me a bunch of water. Fill up these huge jars with water. And Mary says, hey, listen to him. Go do it. And so they do. And then Jesus turns the water into wine. And the servants who knew what happened were amazed. Well, that was the first miracle of Jesus. People were amazed by his teaching. People were amazed by his miracles. I mean, he's God in the flesh. Of course, he's amazing. But there were two times when the Bible says that Jesus was amazed by people. Now, one of them was recorded in Mark 6. So Mark 6, 1 through 6, read this with me. And this is one of those times Jesus was amazed. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with him? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Here it is. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus was amazed at these people's lack of faith. The other time the Bible says Jesus was amazed is here in Luke chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. That means he was amazed. He marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, 
Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now let me ask you, is your faith amazing to Jesus? If it is, which way is it amazing? (laughs) Is, Is the lack of it amazing? Or the greatness of it amazing? Don't you want to be a man or a woman who amazes Jesus by your faith? By your humility? By your repentance over sin? How about by your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or more difficult is your love for neighbor? Or really difficult is your love for your enemy? How about your generosity or your mercy, your compassion, your good works that glorify your Father in heaven? How about you amaze him with your devotion to him and your submission to him? This kind of person has clearly built their life on the rock rather than on the sand. Now let me ask you this. What about our church? Do you think Jesus is amazed by our faith or by our fear and complacency? Now if we're honest, we know the answer to that, don't we? We're going to try to change that. But it is going to take courage on our part. It's also going to take faith. Now let me give a caveat here. I don't have a misunderstanding of faith that presumes it is wishful thinking. I told you before that I had a pastor that I walked up to him one day and I said, Brother, we've failed to meet our budget for the past you know, eight months in a row. How are we going to address this? And he pointed his finger at me and said, you don't have enough faith. I said, okay. <laughs> because I was under authority. So I didn't say what was on my mind. But let me tell you now what's on my mind. Faith is not presuming that things will work out well and then trying to hold God to it. That's wishful thinking. That's not faith. All right? And so what I was thinking was either our budget is too big or our giving is too little, but God already has a plan for funding the church. And that is that people in the church give money to the church and the church uses it, right? So I didn't think he was right about having too little faith. So I don't, faith, I don't think that faith is wishful thinking. But what I do know is that one aspect of faith is boldness based on God's word and instruction. I mean, we saw that with Daniel over and over, didn't we? We saw Daniel say, All right, I don't know how I'm getting out of this, but uh, I have faith that I am. And then he'd go pray and God would show him the dream that, was, that he was to give to Nebuchadnezzar. And he would go and tell him the dream and the interpretation. He was, you know, his, his friends were told, hey, bow down when the, when the orchestra strikes up. And, he, and they said, nah. And then the king pulled him in there and said, perhaps you guys don't understand. But I'm going to recap this thing with you. I want you to bow down when the orchestra starts to play. And they said, well, there's no need to do it again because we already know that we're not going to. Uh, because our God can save us. And even if he doesn't, that's okay. That's faith. That's bold faith. Right? Now, what do we do as a result of what we have seen today? One thing is we understand kingdom authority. Do you want God to use you to work through you and to work through this church? I do more desperately than I can tell you. 
Let me tell you, get yourself fully and completely under the authority of Jesus. By doing so, you will be fit to then get his authority to do things in his name and for his kingdom. Individually and corporately, we must show that we are fully and joyfully under Christ's authority. Y'all are going to get tired of hearing this, but it's true, so I'm going to keep saying it. God is far too wise to give his power and authority to rebels. Do you want our church to reach people and make an impact? Then we're going to have to operate by faith and not fear. We should never be foolish, but neither should we be fearful. So it sort of comes down to how big is your God? Is he the God of Ephesians 3.20? Where the writer just erupts into praise and he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's become a church that amazes Jesus for all the right reasons and see what he is willing to do in and through us. Now the first step in coming under the authority and the lordship of Christ is understanding the gospel. The next step is repenting of your sins And then placing your faith in Jesus. So let me tell you how to do that. Guys, we are, by nature, rebels. We are in rebellion to God. That is the problem. That is the paradise lost part of the story of the Bible. See, we were created perfectly in a perfect environment. With no excuse, no reason to rebel whatsoever. And the word of God was... Enjoy everything except this one thing. And then the serpent came along and he said, you know, God's really holding back on you. He's really keeping your best life now from you. If you would go and you would eat this fruit, you'd know good from evil. You know, you don't now. You could be equal with God. But he's trying to keep a corner on the market. So man and woman decided... To put their faith in the word of the serpent rather than in the word of God. And we have been doing that ever since. That's why we sin. That's why we lie. We say, well, I know I'm not supposed to lie, but I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to lie. Because I know better than God. It's why we fail to uh, give to the work of the church. We say, I know God says to give generously But if I give generously, then I won't have enough money next week. So really, I know better than God does, and I'm not going to obey Him. Every sin can be traced back to our decision to say, we know better than God, and we're going to rebel against His Word. Well, guys, that's a problem we can't fix. And so what God did to fix it for us was He sent Jesus to live a perfect life that we couldn't live in our place. And he sent Jesus to die in our place. The gospel at its very most basic is Jesus in our place. That's why Ephesians tells us that God made Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of Christ. 
So we can, by faith, trade our sin, our rebellion, and put it on Christ's account. And he paid for it on the cross. And then Christ will give us his, his work of perfect obedience, his life of perfect submission to the Father. That can be credited to our account. So that it's not just that we're not guilty. I mean, that's great. But if, I were, if, I were, if God decided I wasn't guilty today, well, tomorrow I'd be guilty because I'm going to sin again. <laughs> okay? But it's even better than that. Not only am I not guilty, and every sin has been paid for, but Christ's righteousness has been given to me. So, you know, our Catholic friends will talk about this uh, reserve of righteousness that they can tap into from the saints. Well, I can't do that, but I can tap into the reserve of righteousness from Jesus Christ himself, who has been, who that righteousness has been given to me. That's why I say that, look, we can never deserve to come to Jesus, but that's okay because Jesus came to us and he took our place. And so because of that, we can be saved if we will repent of our sins, turn away from them. And really, what I've been talking about is submission to Jesus. That's really what, sub, what repentance is, is complete and total surrender to Jesus. Now, if you haven't done that, I would like for you to do that today before you leave here, because it's crucially important that you stop your war with God and come into a relationship of, sub, of submission to Him. Now, we're going to sing and we're going to worship. Um, I asked Jimmy, I said, brother, I know we usually sing a verse or two at the end, but I would love to end the service on this high note of wonderful worship. Can we do that? And he said, yeah, we can do that. So we're going to sing this wonderful song together. Now, if you're here and you say, hey, I want to join this church, we'll come up and I'll tell you the process through which you can join. Or if you say, you know, I'm not certain that I am submitted to Christ because I am in some areas. I mean, I come to church. But there are other areas where I'm really not submitted to Christ. And I want to make sure that I'm not still in that position of rebellion to him. Then you come up and talk to me and I'll, I'll walk you through the gospel and make sure you understand it.